This morning's sermon text comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 32. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And now, Father, they, they don't get any better. Biblical texts don't get any better than verse 32. And therefore, of all the Sundays of the year and of my life, I feel the most inadequate for this text. It is the most glorious of all texts in the Bible. And yet, if it's true, you will be all I need and all we need now. And so come and make it true in everyone's heart here as it is true in yours and in history. Would you open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf and soften the hard and subdue the rebellious and breathe life into the hopeless dead? By the power of the gospel, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some truths almost leave you speechless. So when Paul was finished with the truth of last Sunday's text, that God has foreknown us in love and has predestined us to likeness to Jesus and has called us out of darkness into light and has justified us by grace through faith alone and is now working from one degree to the next a glory in our lives and will bring it to consummation at the last day and give us bodies like Jesus so that all things work together now for our good. When he was finished with that, he was almost speechless and said, what shall we say to these things? Almost. <laughs> Almost was he speechless. What did he say? I mean, what can you say when you've said it all? And the answer is, you can say it again with different words. And that's what he does in 31 and 32. But I want to just pause on that point. When you have heard it all or said it all a hundred times to the same child, to the same dad, to the same roommate, to the same dying father, 
When you've said it a hundred times, what do you say again? And the answer is, you say it again. And you find another way to say it because it is infinitely worthy of 10,000 ways of being said. And so this, this transition from verse 30 to 31, what then shall we say? is a, a kind of invitation, write another poem, sing another song, give another witness, put up another plaque in the kitchen, carry another little piece of paper with a reminder on it, say it again, say it again, find another way to say it. That's what I heard. In the words, what then shall I say? I, I hear the words, it's hard to find adequate words. And I hear the statement, i got to find words. That's what I hear in, what then shall I say to these things? So let's, as a people, get ready to go to two sites. I sit here thinking about this two sites thing. I get so excited, I can hardly stand it. I love these worship times with you. Oh. And we're going to have two teams like this. I said to the team as we were wrestling through how we were going to do this on Wednesday night, I said, I can't believe it. I'm going to get to be a pastor to preach into the context of two worship teams like this. And you can only do it once. You're not allowed to jump around. Because we're going to say it. We're going to write songs. We're going to sing songs. We're going to write sermons and preach sermons. We're going to write prayers and say prayers. And they're going to be new and new and new. And we're going to fold in thousands of new people into the kingdom. Who need a taste of, a, of an apostle who says, what should we say? I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, the inspired Apostle who's almost without words. What shall we say, having said it all in verses 28 to 30? And he says, we're going to say it again. So let's see what he says. I do believe this is just saying it again. If God is for us, who is against us? And the reason I think it's restatement is God is for us is just a summary of he foreknew you in love before you were born. He predestined you to infinite glory and likeness to Jesus. He called you when you were dead in trespasses and sins. He justified you declaring you righteous in his son with spotless position in his presence. He's working glory upon glory in your life and will do it forever and ever. He's for you. It's not a new statement. It's just new words for an old statement. And that's what we have to do. That's why people write songs. That's why people write poems. That's why people put up plaques. That's why people listen to tapes and read books. I've got to see another glorious way to say the old, old, infinitely glorious, inexhaustible story. So he says, God is for us. Now let's ponder those words for a minute. There aren't many more precious words in all the world than God is for me. 
or to put it negatively and throw it into stark relief. The most horrible words I think I could ever hear is, God is against you. If omnipotent wrath is against me, annihilation would be the sweetest experience in the world. Which is why those who commend annihilation as the meaning of the biblical understanding of judgment are totally out of touch with reality. If the wrath of God is against me, oh, sweet Jesus, annihilate me as my salvation. Nobody's annihilated. You live forever, folks, either in hell or in heaven. When the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, according to Revelation chapter 6, annihilation would be the best news in all the world. Annihilation is gospel, not judgment. If God is wrathful and against me. And this text says the unspeakable good news. He's for you and not against you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation means I am always, every second of the day, for you and never against you. That is almost too good to be true. Almost too good to Believe. Never against us. None of our sicknesses is a penalty from a God who's against us. None of our broken cars or failed appliances is a punishment from God. None of our marital strife is a sign of his wrath. None of our lost jobs is a penalty for our sin. None of our wayward children is a crack of the whip of God's retribution. I wonder if you believe that. He is for you always in all circumstances without any exceptions if you are in Christ. Always. Not sometimes against you and sometimes for you. Always for you. And so he asks, if that's true, who can be against us? Who is against us? Now, what what is his answer to that question? What answer do you think he expects to the question, if God is for you, who is against you? And he expects the answer, nobody. To which we say, really? You've got to be kidding. I mean, wake up, God. What do you mean? Nobody is against me? 
Verse 35 says, tribulation, distress, persecution. What's that mean? Except they're against me. Sword. What's that mean? Except I get run through by people who are against me. What do you mean in verse 31 if you can write verse 35? And verse 36 We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. We are killed all day long. What are you saying? He's saying this. No one can successfully be against you. Oh, the devil and sinful man can steal your car and break it down. The devil and man can make you sick. The devil and man can sow seeds of strife in your marriage. The devil and man can take away your job. And the devil and man can rob you of your child. But, verse 28 said, all things work together for good. God is committed to making all of that work for your good, which means those who have designs against you in and through them end up working for you. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Of course people can be against us in one sense. But if verse 28 is true and verse 32 is true and verse 18 is true and verse 23 is true and the Bible is true, all of the devil's and man's designs which are against you in breaking your car and taking your health and messing up your marriage are ruled and designed by God mysteriously for our good, which means they don't succeed in being against you. There's no other way to make sense out of this chapter. This chapter is just one hodgepodge of contradiction if Romans 8.28 does not apply to the horrible things of our lives. Because the horrible things are listed in verse 35 and we are told nobody is against us. Nobody who wields a sword is against you. Nobody who puts you in prison is against you. Nobody who crashes your plane is against you if you are in Christ. Because all their designs subserve the designs of the Almighty, who is always and in everything for you. What an amazing difference it would make in our lives if we believed this. The world chooses its lifestyle because it does fear sickness and it does fear theft and it does fear terror and it fears the loss of job and a dozen other things. And the follower of Jesus hears the words of the Lord Jesus, the Gentile 
else. You seek all those things. Your father knows that you need them. Seek the kingdom first. They'll all be added. As I judge need. What a freedom. Oh, what different kind of people we should be than the world who doesn't believe Romans 8.28. Who curse God when things go bad instead of humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God and looking for the design of the Almighty. Oh, how different we would be. Anything you lose, anything you lack in kingdom ministry of love and sacrifice and suffering will come back to you a hundredfold. Therefore, stand before your adversary, Bethlehem. Missionaries, saints at home, stand before your adversaries in Kankan, New Guinea, and Istanbul, Turkey, and... Tentara, Indonesia. And even to those adversaries who would take your life, say, do what you must. But all your words and all your deeds will only refine my faith and increase my reward and dispatch me to paradise. You cannot be against me. God rules you. And he is for me. What a different kind of people. What a different breed we would be. If God would grant to Bethlehem and all the saints of the Twin Cities and around the world to believe these teachings. Now he has said it again. And so I hear him in his mind, though not on paper, this time saying, what shall I say to that? Now, therefore, what shall I say? Verse 32, I've got to write another verse. I'm not at the end here. What shall I say to the fact that God is for us? No one can be against us. Now, what shall I say? And his answer is, I'll say it another way. I'll say the same thing another way. This time, instead of saying there'll be no enemies, this time I'll say that God is infinitely, overflowingly, never-endingly generous to us and gives us everything it is possible for him to give to us. And I will put under that the rock-solid foundation of his sacrifice of his son. Yes, that's what I'll do. So here's the way he says it. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? I called this in uh, Future Grace, the solid logic of heaven. I wrote a chapter on that verse. The solid logic of heaven. Do you see the logic in verse 32? There's a Latin name for this kind of logic. But my Latin is so bad I'll butcher it if I say it. So I'll say it in English. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. From the hard to the easy. 
From the insurmountable to the easily surmountable. And it goes like this. If he didn't spare his own son, which is an impossible thing to imagine, that he would hand his son over to butchery. If he could overcome the obstacle of his love for his son, and thus kill him, nothing would stop him from fulfilling whatever goal he had in doing that. Because that's the hardest thing imaginable for God. What could be harder to imagine for God than to give His Son up to spitting and beating and a crown of thorns and lashes and nails and spear and mocking and rejection and betrayal and abandonment and lying and the burden of the sins of the world, what could be harder for God than to say, I will give my infinitely worthy son to that kind of horror? Nothing is harder for God to do than that. And Paul's reasoning is, if he could get over that obstacle to our salvation, nothing would stop. From giving us everything with him. That's the logic of heaven. It's a glorious logic. Let's ponder it. His own son. If he did not spare his own son. Take that phrase. His own son in verse 32. Get clear on this now. We are not Muslims. We are not Jehovah's Witnesses. We are not Mormons. We are not Orthodox Jews. Because his own son means he did not find a man on the earth, adopt him, and appoint him to do sonly tasks. Chapter 8, verse 3 of Romans says, He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning the son existed before he was a man. And in Colossians 2.9, it says, All the fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. He is not an angel. He is uncreated, co-eternal, never coming into being, eternally begotten Son, the very image of the Father, fully divine, very God of very God. We are Christians. And this son, no prophet, merely, he gave and handed over. I have four sons. There is no love like the love of a father for a son. Now, don't misunderstand me. I love my wife. 
And I love my daughter. And I love my father. And I love the staff that I'm going to get in a van with at 5 o'clock. Some of the happiest days of my life in those vans. (laughs) And I love you. My church. And every one of those loves is unique and precious. And therefore, without feeling like I have to rob anything from David Livingston's love for his four princesses, I say, there is no love like the love of a father for a son. So, when he says, I have one son, you might say, oh, he has many sons. No, no, no. He has one son. Remember the parable of the tenants? And they're supposed to give the fruit of the harvest to the owner. And he'll take care of them. And he sends them servants. They beat the servants up because we want to keep all of this harvest for ourselves. And then Jesus says, get the words exactly right here. He had one remaining, a beloved son. As clear as day, he had one son, not several. And he loved him. They sent him. I feel the weight of this, his own son, especially. So, he overcame the obstacle and he did what? He delivered him over. Well, let's be careful. What does it say in verse 32? It says, negatively, he did not spare him. And positively, he delivered him over. I think in the words, he didn't spare him, you hear Paul trying to communicate to us, everything in God almost wanted to spare him. Not sparing him means it was hard for God not to spare him. It's a horrible thing what happened to Jesus. The father, as he looked down on the son, Gethsemane, watched Judas, watched Peter, watched the twelve, watched the soldiers, watched Pilate, watched Herod, watched the soldiers pound the nails. As the father beheld this, He did not delight in this sin. Sin came into its own in those hours. Sin was revealed for what it really is in those hours. Sin is an attack on God. Sin is a rejection of God. Sin is an assault on God the Son. And so sin becomes crystal clear when God becomes man, offers himself up for man, and the sin crushes him. And we see sin for what it really is. So God didn't like that, and yet he delivered him over. Now those words, he delivered him over, are huge. Let's 
let's just make sure our minds are riveted now. Because here we are, folks. And here I'm utterly inadequate. And so may the Spirit come and do something for you here way beyond what I can do. Here we are at a moment in history where everything valuable and everything crucial and everything important in the universe gathers. The love of God for man and the hatred of God for sin gather here. Absolute sovereignty over all things and weighty, everlasting, immeasurable human accountability and guilt gather here. Infinite wisdom and infinite strength and power gather here when the Father delivers the Son to death. This is the most important moment in history. Indeed, in eternity. It strikes me very strange when I put it against this backdrop. The Bible says, Judas delivered him over. Very same word. The Bible says, Pilate delivered him over. Very same word. The Bible says, the Jews delivered him over. The Bible says, Herod delivered him over. The Bible says, the Gentiles delivered him over. And the Bible says, you delivered him over. And amazingly, the Bible says, Jesus delivered himself over. John 10, 16, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. And therefore, what Paul is doing here is going in and through Judas, Pilate, Herod, Jews, Gentiles, you, Jesus, to the absolute ultimate delivering over, God delivered him over. You think you're doing this, Pilate? You're a puppet, a lackey. God's got a plan for the world here. You think you're in charge, Herod, with that robe? You think you've got power, soldier, with that hammer? You think you've got strategic wisdom, Judas, for a moment? God did. And it was the hardest thing in the universe to do. The logic of heaven holds. That's what we should say. The logic of heaven holds. He shall therefore with him surely and freely give us all things. Don't miss this. I said when I prayed, this is the most important, the most beautiful, the most glorious, the great consummation text of the Bible. I mean that because you have all of the cross in the first half of the verse and all of the benefits of the cross in the second half of the verse. And the logic is, 
If God could get over the Mount Everest obstacle between him and your blessing forever, which is the love that he has for his son, if he could get over that, as it were, and submit his son to infamy and horror and butchery, like a piece of meat hung up, if he could get over that and do that, Whatever goal he had in mind in doing that, nothing can now stop. Nothing. That's the logic. This text is written to make you lion-hearted. It is the purchase and fulfillment of Psalm 84.11. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It is the promise fulfilled of 1 Corinthians 3.21. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the things present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. It is the sealing of the promise of Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Everything heaven can hold by way of good has been bought for you in this act of handing over and it will be yours or Christ is not Christ and God is not God. It is the securing of the promise of Jesus' words. Don't be anxious about what you should eat or about what you should drink or about what you should wear. He knows that you have need of these things. Seek the kingdom and he will add all of these things to you. I'm I'm thinking of these texts because of the word all things in 32b. Are you with me? Because he did not spare his own son, how shall he not with him give us ta-panta? All things with him. To which we say, just like we did in verse 31, really? Just like we said, nobody is against us. And here we say, all things, I can think of a few things I lack. Are we going to butcher the Bible the way we butchered Jesus? Since he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up, he will with absolute moral certainty, give us all things with him. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. I'm going to close by reading an answer to this question. All things? 
What do you mean? Is this supposed to be good news? That Jesus bought for me every blessing in the heavenly places? That no good thing will be withheld from those who walk uprightly? That all things are ours in Christ Jesus? That if we seek the kingdom first, all things will be added to us? Are we supposed to hear this as good news? How? I'm going to read an old man, John Flavel. 350 years ago, back when the redwoods grew in the Christian church. They were called Puritans. We don't have any today. So if you want to read the redwoods, go back. And here's what he said. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? How is it imaginable that God should withhold after this spiritual things or temporal things from his people? How shall he not call them effectually, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly, glorify them eternally? How shall he not clothe them, feed them, protect them, deliver them? Surely if he would not spare his own son, one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that ever he should after this deny or withhold from his people for whose sakes all this was suffered. Any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. I'll read the last sentence again. He didn't spare one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, or one misery from his son. Therefore, it can never be imagined that he should, after this, withhold from his people any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. God always does for his people. Those who are in Christ, those who trust Christ, God always does, always does good to you. I'm going to say one more very radical thing. If you believe that Christ died for you, you must believe this. Or the logic of verse 32 is butchered. We think we can separate out the simple gospel Jesus died for my sins from the massive, glorious promises of the Bible to work all things for our good. So that there can be some dallying with God in tragedy. No. He who did not spare his own son... but gave him up for us all. If you believe that, you've got to finish the sentence. How shall he not with him give us all things that are good for us?
believing that is the battle of the Christian life. The whole Christian life can be summed up in one thing. Believe that and live like it. That's all the Christian life. Believe that God is for you and live the radical, sacrificial, lay-down-your-life love that God calls you to. And stop trying to secure and pad and make easy and comfortable your life and give it away. Verna prayed downstairs before the service. Life is so short. A little vapor's breath and then endless eons of enjoyment of Christ and all His blessings. Oh, Bethlehem. Look to Jesus. Love the cross, live in love, and fear no more. Father in heaven, thank you that you did not spare your son. And that now, because of his death and mighty resurrection, you will not spare us any good thing. Help us to believe it. Help us to share it. Help us to live it. And all the people said, Amen.